We turn now to Matthew chapter 1. And as you're getting there, I'll remind you of what we looked at last Sunday morning, which was the genealogy that is the beginning of this, uh, the beginning of this chapter. And we spoke about how these genealogies, oftentimes, uh, we just kind of skip over them. We don't think about what they tell us or why the uh, Holy Spirit and the wisdom of God would inspire an author to include this in the Scriptures. And so we could talk about all the generations that are there and all the names that are given, and there are important points to be made in all of that. But last Sunday we focused on verses 1 and 18 as we looked at the entire thing to make the point that Matthew is making which is this genealogy establishes something incredibly important about the one of whom he is writing. It establishes that he is the Christ, that is the anointed one, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, that he is the son of David, the heir of David's throne, and that he is the heir or seed of Abraham. Now we looked at all of that last Sunday and how important that is and how uh, these are, if you will, Tremendous figures in the Old Testament, aren't they? I mean, Abraham and and David, these are tremendous figures, and yet they are figures to whom God made promises. God made a promise to Abram that he would receive a land, an inheritance, if you will. He would have a, a son, a seed of promise, and we looked at that a little bit last Sunday morning. Of course, the New Testament tells us to see that what would seem to be the immediate fulfillment of that in Isaac was just really, if you will, a shadow of its perfect or true fulfillment in Christ, that Christ is truly the seed, if you will, of Abram. And if you want to go beyond that, obviously, uh, David was promised a a throne after him, uh, established forevermore, and we would read in the scriptures of an heir, of Solomon, and we would say, well, that seems to be the fulfillment, but that throne was promised to be established forevermore, and that his kingdom would be without end. And so we say, well, it doesn't seem in some sense then, right, to be fulfilled in Solomon, but it is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And all of that is the background of what we're reading about in this gospel. So from the very beginning, Matthew wants you to know something very important about Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. He is the seed of Abraham, and he is the heir of David. This is the one. This is the singular. Now, again, all of that could be said generically, right, in some sense. There is um, all the Jews said, well, we are of our father Abraham. But again, Matthew is saying, but there is a specific promise of a seed. Paul says this seed is singular, meaning Christ. And that is what Matthew is trying to establish. But furthermore, you say, well, there would be many descendants, if you will, of David, perhaps, right? Many And yet this is the one descendant who fulfills the promise given to David of a house that would be established, that God himself would build, a legacy, if you will, a a throne that would reign forevermore, that one would sit upon that throne and his kingdom would be without end. And so again, we spoke about the importance of seeing that in in the lens of Chronicles and how even coming back into the land, they believed this promise had not been yet fulfilled because they said, there is no Davidic king. The throne has not been established forevermore, but we believe it will be because God has promised it. And so they were looking forward to the day where this heir of David would come. And of course, Matthew is announcing that day has come. David's heir is here. We will tell you about him. His name is Jesus. He is the Christ. 
He is the one. And so all of that is established. And we spoke about how uh, in verse 17, it's not just that, um, that these are major figures, but he's trying to make a point that there is a, a, if you will, a pattern to how God has worked. All the generations from Abraham to David are 14. And from David until captivity, 14. And from captivity to Christ, 14 generations. Now he continues from there, and as we get ready to read it, one author said, don't think of this so much as a birth narrative, although it does contain the history, if you will, of that birth. But it's really more of a theological statement on the origin of Christ. Where is it this Christ came from? Who is He? How are we to understand Him? And so Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, says, think about it rightly from the very beginning of this text. And so let's read what he says. Again, we read it together earlier. I'll read it now. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now I want us to think about three points as we think about this text today. First of all, a Davidic son. Second of all, an angelic message. And thirdly, a mighty Savior. A mighty Savior. I think we'll see all of these things this morning. So beginning first with this Davidic son, we said a moment ago that the purpose of Matthew in giving that genealogy is to establish something as factual. And uh, we can read in early Jewish history that genealogies were very easy to find. And there's a point that can be made. In fact, I preached a sermon on that a number of years ago, I don't know, five or six years ago, on how one of the things these genealogies established was go check the record. Go check the record. In fact, you can read in the historians of the day uh, that there were genealogies everywhere. People trying to trace back probably a consequence of the Babylonian captivity and a lot of those things being lost. They were trying to go back and rewrite it as many people do today, try to search out their genealogy and find out who their great-great-great-grandparents were. And so again, this is an invitation to go back and see uh, if you can trace this back and see that what Matthew is recording here is accurate. So they point to the fact that Jesus is a descendant of David and of Abraham. But really what they establish is that Joseph is a descendant, if you will, of David and of uh, Abraham. In fact, if you look at it, you'll see that as it walks through the genealogy. Notice one after the other, Jesse begot David. David the king begot Solomon and so on and so forth. There's a pattern there, isn't it, of a father begetting a son. And of that son begetting a grandson or his own son. And it goes on and on and on until you come to verse 16. And it says, and Jacob begot Joseph. 
But notice it doesn't say Joseph begot Christ or begot Jesus. It says Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ or the Christ. Now it establishes the link here in the genealogy to Joseph. Now that is important. But we might ask ourselves, well, if it's distancing Jesus from Joseph in a sense, does this genealogy apply to Jesus? And the answer is yes. That's exactly what Matthew is going to establish in today's text. That it is necessary that Joseph be, if you will, the earthly or adoptive father of Jesus. That he might be legally ruled in or brought into this family line tracing back to David. This is incredibly important for the fulfillment of the promises given we know that Joseph is not his biological father. He was born of Mary, conceived by the Holy Ghost, by the power of God. And so again, we need to see that this is the very question that Matthew is answering for us. If we trace the lineage down to Joseph, and yet Joseph is not biologically connected to Jesus in the sense of uh, normal uh, course of events, then how do we trace this promise to Jesus? The one that you're claiming is traced to Jesus. The one that came to David. That of David there will be one who will come who will be king and sit upon the throne and that throne will never end. How was this applied to Jesus? So this pattern that is suddenly stopped in verse 16 is very important for Matthew to answer. And so he will answer it today. We have to know what happens. Now to understand this we have to think about uh, some things that are a little bit different for us. We live in a culture today that the practice that we read about here in the verses for today seem alien to us. For instance, it speaks about being betrothed. And we think, well, that's like being engaged. And in some sense, it is like that. But it's also very different from that. Uh, today, an engagement is largely two individuals who decide, uh, a man and a woman, that we want to get married. And so we're going to commit ourselves to one another. There's a process that you might go through if you want to do it the traditional way in which you buy a ring and so on and so forth. Even if you want to do it the old-fashioned way, go ask the parents for permission and this sort of thing. Uh, but that's how it's done today. It's largely a decision of the two individuals. But that isn't how it was done in their day. A betrothal process was a very specific thing in which you would go to the family of the bride and you would uh, propose, it would usually be your family, would go to the family of the bride and propose a marriage. What do you think about this joining of our families, these joinings of these people? It was a, a really a family involvement, and it was decided on what was good for the family and the prospects of the individuals involved, but that's how it happened. And an agreement was made. A bride price would be set, and then that bride price had to be met before the marriage could actually take place. But if it was agreed to, it was seen as a contract. It wasn't something like today where two people can be engaged, they get upset at each other, and it's over. By mutual agreement or by the agreement of only one of them, right? They walk away and it's over. It was not that way in this day. There were financial agreements made. And if it was ended by the agreement of families, there would be, generally speaking, financial consequences to that. Now, why does this matter? Because when we speak of betrothal, that is already a legal binding between two people. This is how we can understand the text, that they are so linked together, and why Joseph 
is already referred to, or excuse me, Mary is referred to as Joseph's wife in this text. That's how you make sense of it. They are not legally married. Uh, They don't enjoy the benefits of marriage in many regards. But in the community, they are seen as already a couple, already bound together. This is the picture uh, that you see here. Notice in verse 19, it says, Then Joseph, her husband, and that would be confusing to us because we'd say, Wait a minute, I thought they were not married yet. And they aren't, but in the eyes of the community, they are linked together now. It takes something like a divorce to end even this betrothal process. It would take agreements between the families and penalties paid and all these various things. It was a complicated process. But again, when the betrothal thing happened, it was not entered into lightly. It was seen as the first half of the step of marriage. Now, we still see engagement that way, but we don't see it as binding, if you will. And so again, we want to see that uh, when they were betrothed, this is already seeing them as an entity, as a couple. Now, this obviously doesn't mean that they're living together, that they're uh, enjoying the benefits of marriage, but it does mean they are seen together. And this is important to understanding the story uh, as, as we see it here. So they're already legally joined together in some sense. And it was uh, when they would do this betrothal process, it was not only if you will, the coming together of two families or, or a commitment to one another in the, in the presence of the family, but also in the uh, presence of the community. Your whole community know, knows now that you are uh, betrothed together, that you are uh, a couple, if you will. But most importantly for Jews, they would see this as in the eyes of God. They are joined together. And so again, we see this. This is a contract that simply is not easy to break. And so gives us historical reference when it says it was in this very period of time that these events took place. Now, how do we know that? Well, look at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. So here are the events. Here's the history that's given to you. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, that is, their marriage, before they had consummated their marriage, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So this tells you it's in this time of betrothal that these events take place. After they are legally, if you get, uh, want to put it this way, obligated to one another, but before they're actually married and have consummated the relationship, an event takes place. Now, um, this is obviously going to be a problem, isn't it? Because there's some things that we can say here. First of all, that Mary is with child and Joseph knows it's not his. Joseph has enough knowledge to know, I haven't done anything that would contribute to there being a child. And we can imagine that this was a very stressful time for both of them, but for him as well, as he is trying to think about what has to be done here. Now, I don't think Joseph had to think about it uh, too long or too hard, because the Scriptures tell us something about him. He was a just man. And we want to look at that, because we want to think about this for a minute. There is a lot of danger here in this story. Uh, as we think about what it says here, that she is found with child of the Holy Spirit. Joseph knows she's with child. He knows he's betrothed to her. He knows now this must break up. Now, there's much said about the fact that in the law, she could have been stoned to death. Certainly, that is literally true. It did not seem to be happening in the days uh, that we're reading about here. It was not really practiced anymore. But what you can guarantee is Mary would have been ostracized for sure marginalized, her own family would have turned their back on her because she would have shamed them, the community would have, on and on and on. This would have been a story that wouldn't have been good for Mary, if you will. 
And so Joseph has all of this on his mind. In fact, it's important to note what's said of Joseph in this text. It says in verse 19 that he was a just man. Now, we often think that what comes after that, not wanting to make a public example of her, flows out of the fact that he is just. But I think the part that, he, that he's just means he follows the law, that he's an obedient Jew to the word of God. He is a just man. And I think what it's saying is there's no doubt what he has to do. He has to put her away. He cannot marry her because of this. But notice that because he is a man who does not want to make a public example of her, he wants to do it secretly, privately, as quietly as possible. In other words, he sees what he must do, but he doesn't want to do it in such a way that it would add added stress or added, uh, if you will, uh, shame to Mary. Now, if you think about this for a minute, the Scriptures don't tell us very much about Joseph. If you look through all the Scriptures, you find very little said about Joseph, but what you do find speaks of a remarkable man. A man who, though he's uh, spoken of very little in the Scriptures, uh, captures our attention, I think. If you look at this, this is a just man, a man who wants to do what is just and right before God, but a man whose justice is seasoned with the quality of mercy. A man who looks at what he must do, but he tries to find a way to do it in a merciful way. My friends, that is an attribute, if you think about it, of God himself, isn't it? That he is a just God, but he's a merciful God. If we got just the just side of God, we would all be damned, wouldn't we? There would be no hope for any of us if we only got the justice of God. But we have a God who is just and holy, but also merciful. And that is one of the things that we most celebrate is the mercy and kindness of God. And so we see here in, in this human being, in Joseph, these attributes as well, which we should all have. We should be a people who care about what is just and right, but who are also seasoned by mercy. And so Joseph decides or desires to do this thing as quietly and privately as possible. It doesn't mean that it won't be public at all. It means he's trying to find a way to do this as much as possible to uh, lower, if you will, the shame that this will bring upon Mary. I get the feeling from that that not only is he a merciful man, but he must have loved Mary. In other words, he wouldn't publicly call her out. He wouldn't put her to shame in order to save any potential harm to his own reputation. Joseph is a man that we can say is presented with moral character, desiring to do what is right both in terms of justice and mercy. But his new plan that he's come up with on how he's going to handle this situation quickly goes out the window, doesn't it? By the intervention of an angel. In fact, I should say the intervention of God, right? Because the angel is sent by God. God intervenes in this situation. In fact, this entire history is a history of the intervention of God, isn't it? Mary being chosen, intervention of God. The fact that a Savior is even coming at all, the intervention of God into the story. And here again, if the course of human events were left to their, to their own ends, Joseph's going to walk out of the picture. That's what's going to happen. That's what Joseph has already announced he's going to do. I love Mary. I don't want shame to come upon her, but I can't marry her. He's going to walk out of the picture, and yet... If we were to believe God doesn't intervene, what that would mean is all this work that has been done in the Old Testament Scriptures to lead to this moment falls through. Falls through. And yet God does intervene. God intervenes in a powerful way. 
he gives this message, if you will, this angelic message in a dream. And he says, this angel of the Lord appearing in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, again, identifying the very thing the genealogy has pointed to us, that he is the son and heir, if you will, of David, not the heir of the throne in the sense of that Jesus is, this eternal everlasting throne. He is not the heir, capital letters, Jesus, but he is a son of David and the one through whom the promise is moving. He says, Son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. This is not some thing worthy of being suspect or derision or whatever you want to say. This is a work of God. I can imagine that Mary has confessed something like this, right, to him. Listen, an angel appeared to me and I asked him, how can this be since I have not known a man? And he said, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and God is going to do this miracle. And I don't know what the reaction of Joseph was. If he was like, I don't know. (laughs) Or if he was like, maybe, but what will people say? But I know this, when this dream comes to Joseph, he accepts it as the truth from God. He hears this and he says, so this is, this, this, this child that is conceived in her is not of man, but of the Holy Ghost. But it doesn't stop there, does it? The message says, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. I want to come back to that in just a moment, but, but think for a moment about this, this message that he has received. This message that he has received that is kind of shaken things up, shaken up his plan. He's told this child is a child of promise, a child that God has granted, that is conceived in her by the power of the Spirit of God. This is what's going on. And this son shall have the name of Jesus, and he shall save his people from their sin. Now, it's interesting because Matthew gives us a little editorial note, doesn't he, in 22. He says, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, this is Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, or the, uh, shall bring forth a child, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now, this is a promise that is known in the Old Testament. It's one of the scriptures we hear every Christmas season over and again because it's recognized how important a promise it is in the Old Testament, right? It's clear how important it is. I'll tell you how you know it's important. The enemies of God attack it constantly. It is one of the most attacked verses in the Bible. They say, oh, he didn't say virgin. And sometimes, haven't in a couple of years, but sometimes we have a whole sermon on that verse in which we argue, I pray conclusively, that it was interpreted virgin even in the days before Jesus. You know, the Jewish scholars and atheist scholars today say, no, 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 no. This is something Christians later reinterpreted. It didn't mean virgin. Nobody took it as virgin until the Christians came along and they said, oh, no, Isaiah said uh, young woman. And we could get into that sometime. Maybe we will this year. But the point is this. If you want to know how Jews interpret it, just go back and read their writings. You can read in their writings from the pre-Christian era that they interpreted this 
as virgin? And if you uh, want to find the simplest answer of all, go back to the Septuagint. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was done a couple of hundred years before Christ was on the scene, and in it they translated this word in Isaiah 7.14 as parthenos, which is the Greek word for virgin. So we can make a definitive argument that Jews interpreted this to be a promise of a virgin birth long before Christ was even born. And the writings tell us that anyway, the, the writings of the Jewish elders and, and so on and so forth, that that's how it was interpreted. It was only after Christ that they changed their interpretation. And the atheists loved to jump on board uh, with them and say, see, even the Jewish scholars say it never said virgin. Well, again, go back and explain the Greek Old Testament in the days before Christ and how they came to that word. Because Parthenos can only mean one thing. It is the literal Greek word for virgin. The Parthenon is the temple of the virgin, for instance, that we have a replica of in Nashville today. Again, uh, it is clear what this means. And what Matthew is saying is this is the fulfillment of that promise. Now, why would this be any word to Jewish readers in the days of Matthew unless they were told to expect a promise that would come in the birth of a child to a virgin. In other words, as, as Matthew says, here's the events that happened. During the betrothal period, Mary was found to be with child, and the father, Joseph, said, it's not mine. And someone came along and said, well, I believe the answer is the, the Holy Spirit. I heard that somewhere, the Holy Spirit, uh, in a miraculous power of God, conceived that child in Mary. And maybe we would go, whatever, right? Whatever, that's a good way to explain this away. Except the point here is, Matthew says, for have you not heard this? And we've been waiting on. This, is, this exact thing was promised to us. Isaiah prophesied long ago of a woman who would one day, a virgin who would one day conceive and bring forth a child. And this child shall be named Emmanuel, God with us. Now, this is not in the in the message, if you will, to Joseph. This is a, a note given to us by Matthew. The quotation ends at the end of verse 21. Verse 22, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Again, Matthew's writing to Jews. If they didn't expect a virgin birth from Isaiah 7.14, they would say, that's not even what that verse means. This is nonsense, Matthew. You haven't proven anything. But Matthew writes this as if, in reading this, you will say, now I understand what's happening. Now I understand. You're claiming that this child, Jesus, who is the Christ, is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises given to us. That He is the seed of Abraham. He is the heir of David's throne. He is the one born of a virgin. He's the Messiah. The one on whom we've been waiting. That's your claim. So again, it's important to understand that Joseph was convinced by this dream that he had, but Matthew wants us to be convinced that this is the one of whom he is writing. And so again, what is central to the story is that this is a just man who is convinced by God that it is God's will that he stay with Mary, that he marry her, and that he follow through with naming this child. Now we might ask why that's important. Well, 
uh, in the process in Jewish culture of adoption, you would accept the child as your own and you would go to the temple and name the child. So why this instruction is given that you shall name him Jesus is very important. One New Testament scholar, R.T. France, put it this way, it is through the adoptive act of naming by Joseph that Jesus becomes a son of David. A son of David. And that's key to this entire history. That's a key to what God has been doing at work for thousands of years, preparing for this exact moment. That's what Matthew is saying. All these streams of history that God has ordained to come together in this moment in what Paul calls the pleroma or the fullness of time. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born of this woman, born of Mary, born under the law. For what purpose? That He might redeem us who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. That largely, if you want to say, is really the footnotes to what this is all about. I should have said cliff notes. That's what I meant to say. It is the summary of what all this is about. Well, how was he born of a woman? Read Matthew chapter 1. You can also read Luke, but we're reading Matthew. But here it is. And it's through this process, if you will, that God has ordained that he will become the son of David, an official heir. Now, this brings us to our third point, a mighty Savior. What will he name the child? Is it up to Joseph? Can Joseph just say, you know... I like my own name. I'd like to name him Joey Jr. You know, I'd like to name him whatever. No, it is not up to him. It's made clear in the text. God tells him what he shall name him. Verse 21, She shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Don't go off script here, Joseph. You have an important role to play here. We often talk about how Mary is is chosen for this incredible uh, role in the history of salvation and she is she is she recognizes that future generation she says shall call me blessed they will call me blessed we look back to mary and we say what an honor and a privilege that god would use this woman who knew she was of no importance if you read the magnificat it's clear that mary says who am i to get such a, a glorious role in god's workings He who is mighty has done great things for me. She recognized that she wasn't worthy of it. If you want to have someone knock down Catholic doctrine of something incredible about Mary, all you have to do is read what Mary says of herself. She recognizes there's nothing in her worthy of what God has done. She recognizes that that it's a blessing from God that she be chosen for this role. But we don't often think about Joseph in that same way. Joseph is blessed that he is at this place in time and that God is using him in the same way that he is the one through whom this promise is moving. God is moving it through Joseph to his own son, God's own son, Jesus. He becomes a son of David, if you will, through Joseph, through this adoptive process. And that name is a significant name, isn't it? Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua in the Old Testament. A pretty important name, if you will, in the history of Israel, but, but also an important name in what it means. It means something like Yahweh saves or Yahweh's salvation. Here is the one who comes as Savior, 
And that's a mighty and perfect name for a mighty and perfect Savior. Joseph is told that significance directly, isn't he? He doesn't have to try to put it together. Oftentimes, uh, God makes things very clear to us. And here's an example. He says, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. This is the Savior who has been promised. This is the Savior on whom you've been waiting. This is the Savior that I've been talking about all the way back in the Garden of Eden. That there will be a seed of woman who will crush the serpent's head. A seed through whom all the nations shall be blessed. One who will sit on David's throne forevermore. All these promises find their fulfillment in this one. In this one. He is, if you will, God's salvation. But He saves His people from their sin. I think that's important to think about, isn't it? Because when we look about uh, the New Testament, in fact, in this gospel, one of the things we find over and over again in this gospel is a fundamental misunderstanding of what Jesus comes to save us from. How many of the problems as we walk through Matthew are people who are looking for a different kind of salvation? Right? A different kind of salvation. We're not as interested in this sin thing, sin and death. Maybe that's important, but how about Rome? Save us from Rome. It seems even John the Baptist, as we recently walked through this, had some questions, didn't he? While he was in jail, he sends two disciples to go to Jesus and say, Are you the one, or should we expect someone else? Now, what does that say about John the Baptist? Jesus cautions us, don't read anything too bad in that. John was a mighty man. God used him in a powerful way. What did you all go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken in the wind? No, a man of God proclaiming the truth. But John is just a man. And he has questions sometimes. And as we tried to say at night when we were going through that passage, good for John that he came to the right place to have them answered. He went to Jesus when he had a question. Who are you? We thought this was who you are. Is that right or should we expect another? And what's Jesus' answer? Turn to Isaiah. Read what Isaiah prophesied of me, and you will find that all those things are the very things I'm doing. Well, what was it that John expected that wasn't happening that led to confusion? Maybe John had a little bit of this in him, too, of hoping that we would have a, a national liberator, right? One who would ride in and, and free him out of jail and all the other captives. Clearly, many people thought that way. But Jesus is not just another Judas Maccabeus, is he? He's not just another earthly liberator fighting an, an earthly tyrant. He's the one liberator who could liberate us from the one thing we could not liberate ourselves from under any circumstances, and that is the weight and slavery to sin and death. He came to give us freedom from those things. And so I say over and over again that we need to recognize who Matthew says this is. This is not a mere human being. He is human, right? Fully God, fully man. But he's not, if you will, a human being only as we are. It's important to recognize that because if he were, he couldn't do what God has sent him to do. He is the spotless, righteous, perfect God-man, the incarnate Son of God, the one who is Emmanuel, God with us, as this text says, the Son of Abraham, as this text says, through whom all the earth shall be blessed, the ends of the earth, 
the Son of David with the divine right to rule and reign, fully God, fully man, the one who could perfectly fulfill the offices of prophet, priest, and king, as we've been looking at in Hebrews. The one who is rightfully given the title Christ. That's an office, isn't it? Christ. He is the Christ, the anointed one of God, the Messiah who came. And I say this over and over, but it's important to recognize this. Don't miss it because we see a baby in a manger. It is a cute scene, but we've made it too cute, if you will. We miss the point. This is God's salvation entering the world to overthrow the power of sin and death. And what Matthew is saying, when you hear the story of the baby, don't miss that this is the very power of God entering into the world. The very power of God. Is there a cute baby in the manger? I don't know if he was cute, but he was in a manger. But look closer still and see what you find. The fulfillment of the plan of God from eternity past. That's what Matthew wants you to see. When you look at that manger, look closely and what will you find there? The fulfillment of all that God has been doing for thousands of years. In fact, much longer than that. Bringing all these streams together, all these Uh, if you will, uh, genealogy tables together. All that he's been doing, he's bringing together in this one moment, in the fullness of time. Not one moment early, not one moment late. The fullness, the pleroma, the perfect moment of history. He brings it all together. And what do we find? Jesus, the Savior of mankind, the Messiah. The Messiah. I think what uh, Matthew is saying is, When you hear what's happening here, don't miss that point. This is the entrance into the world of the Son of God, the Savior. Look unto Him and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Amen. Amen.